This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. And hello, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca, and welcome back to the History Teachers Talking Podcast. Tom, how are you doing today? Not bad. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing. I'm doing. Yes. All right. So today we're going to talk about some weird, bizarre, and revolutionary weapons in American history. I think we're not going to necessarily talk about every weapon. Uh, that's kind of, that would be impossible for this medium. Nor are we going to talk about every weapon with regards to every American conflict that the United States yeah. has been in. But I think we're going to concentrate on the main three wars, three of the biggest wars, casualty-wise, I guess, that the United States has participated in. And the first one we're going to talk about is going to be Civil War. The second is going to be World War One, and then World War II. I remember these wars were going on, so there's a lot of research and development was just happening as the war is going on. So that's why you get some of these just crazy concepts. They're just they're trying anything. They're basically you know throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. They might not some make of it literally, yeah. yeah, literally, it's yeah. like that. And it might not make a lot of sense, but it might have made sense at, at the time. And it, you know, and it wasn't just us other sides doing the same thing too. It's just kind of like uh, you know, war really does motivate this type of stuff. So it's just seeing what works, basically. Yeah. So let's start with civil war. Some uh, let's talk about some weird, bizarre, revolutionary weapons of civil war. Well, there's, there's some that worked, some that didn't. I saw one that I found that was pretty um, different out there. What they were trying to do was trying to get the both of both worlds. It was called a shotgun pistol revolver. Mm-hmm. It was known as the Lamont grape shot revolver. It's like one of these like forgotten weapons because it weighed so much. But what it basically was, um, was used, it's supposed to be like a wonder weapon of the Confederate Army. The idea is give this to soldiers as they're riding on horseback and they'll be able to use a revolver. And then when they get closer, they, it's also a shotgun on the side of it. So they would, she would shoot like a, a grape shot, a buckshot. Grape shot. That's what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. Um, so they figured, why not? Like this would be, it was really deadly and it was, it just, the problem was it wasn't accurate. Most because a gun, it was a revolver and it weighed so much. It weighed over five pounds fully loaded, which is a lot to just have in your hand and try to like aim while you're riding on a horseback. So most soldiers just kind of like threw it, like didn't even use it as time went on and just rather have, I'll just carry two pistols instead of having this. You know, yeah. um, so it, it didn't really work um, because it was just too heavy, but it was it was uh, considered um, very deadly. And it was really pushed aside for the Colt revolver that comes out a little bit later and it becomes like infamous. Yep. Actually, the oh, Colt revolver, um, one of the more famous ones was the Colt Patterson, which was built in New Jersey. The good old Patterson. Another one that I kind of find interesting from the Civil War, I, I don't know if you found that in your research, was the Colt torpedo. Yes. So essentially, it was like a hollow iron casting that was covered with coal dust and filled with explosives. So it was like a grenade that looked like coal. Mm -hmm. And it was conceived by Thomas Courtenay of the Confederate Secret Service. And it was designed as an explosive that was meant to be hidden in enemy coal piles for trains and steamships. So the idea was that when they were shoveling into, you know, coal into the boilers, the torpedoes would then explode, destroying, killing, and sinking anything that they touched. And we don't really know how many times this was successful, mainly because the Union Army discovered this plot by capturing a rebel uh, courier. Yeah, like a spy, right? They, they yeah, to it. he had them with him. But there are reports in history that some of these bombs actually did make their way onto specifically ships, steamboats, and steamships. So I thought that was kind of like a cool Secret Service weapon, you know, designed by... Yeah, uh, kind of like that, you know, Twitter. James Bond type stuff, right? The little hidden... 
yep. hitting and see what happens that type of thing. Yeah. And they call it a torpedo right. just because that's what they call anything that exploded back then. If it, that's what they called. Yep. If it exploded, it was called a torpedo. Even though it looks like it's like a hand grenade. Yeah, but again, this is that mother necessity, right? Necessity, you know, is creating these new ideas. So they're saying, you know, the, the, un, the union is like this big powerhouse where they have more industry, they have more railroads and everything like that. And uh, the Confederates is trying to find something that can kind of even the score. So they're going to use these more... Like homemade what's, almost. What's the word? Yeah, homemade. Also, what was, what was I trying to... Like, like hidden tactics. Like, they're amateur. You know? Yeah, they're kind of yeah. amateur weapons. We would yeah. call it like guerrilla warfare, basically. That's what yep. they're basically trying Indeed. to do. I think we should also talk about, you know, probably the most famous odd weapon, specifically yeah. for the time, bizarre, weird, revolutionary weapon, and that was the submarine. Yeah. The Hunley, right? right. That's what you're looking at? Yeah, the Hunley. So the Hunley, um, you know, it holds the distinction for being the very first submarine to take down a ship. Uh, it was a tiny crew. They kind of sat inside this thing. It was almost a death wish in itself. And... Wasn't it like a like a hand crank? It was cranked, yeah, hand cranked, and it was just yeah. it didn't have like torpedoes. It didn't shoot anything. It was like a, just a, what like a giant spear, like where there's like a explosive on the end of it that's supposed to like ram into a ship, and then it would like they would back up, and the explosive would supposedly stay. Yeah. Um, Rocky, you know, if you if you think about it, not think about it, if you read about it. You realize that it it sank a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I agree. Um, the, the Confederates sank it once because they forgot to close the hatches when they went underwater with it when they launched yeah, it. Smart. So they that was the first thing. Like, oh man, we didn't close the door. Like, well, yeah. Like that's not you know, it's like having a screen door on a submarine. It's not a good idea. Yeah, they also said that it it killed twelve people before it was ever successfully used in okay. war. <laughs> so, good luck there, right? Yeah, it definitely um, had its problems. And actually, the its first attack was its only attack. You know, when it rammed the spear into USS um, Housatonic, I think. Yeah. It was part of a naval blockade in Charleston, North Carolina. So the Housatonic sank, killed five crewmen, but then you know the Hunley never really returned to base because it also sank for the third time in its short history and they, they killed. Probably just never got, it probably just got stuck, and then the bomb went off. The explosive went off when they were still stuck into the Housatonic, basically. Yep. And I'm pretty sure that they found the Hunley not that long ago. They find, yeah, I remember seeing that here that years ago. They did find parts of it or something uh, like that. I think, was, yeah, it, I think it, they it, took it out. That was always, yeah, I'm sorry. That was always what they, they they thought it blew up getting stuck, but it actually proved when they found it that it did leave it, but it, it got like, damaged in the explosion. It was probably taken on water. Yeah. And that's what sunk it. And then the, the crew now obviously didn't make it out. So. And then another thing that is definitely, I would say, not really weird or bizarre, but revolutionary when it comes to weaponry in the Civil War is obviously the Gatling gun. Mm-hmm. There's a couple but, interesting things about the Gatling gun. I mean, Tom, you want to kind of get into it a little bit? Well, obviously, the Gatling gun, it's giving you like more bang for your buck about it, basically, right? It's a, one of those big repeating rifles, right? It's a, it really used in Civil War. It's kind of like a prelude, like the great-grandfather or grandfather to the machine gun, I guess you would say, right, that you see there on. Yep. In World War One, um, especially for yeah. frontline troops, because now they could just load these things, and all they needed to do to get a shot off was really just you know pump it. And the same guy who made the Gatling gun used to also make um, circus rides. He was just make he just made the Gatling gun and make money. And he was like, "What's yep. once one way I can make a lot of money? Uh, well, there's war, so if I make something that you know makes killing easier, um, I can make a lot of money." And that was basically the idea. Um, and it, nothing was more deadly than the Gatling gun. I believe most of the deaths probably in the Civil War or results of injuries or, you know, from the Gatling gun. Um, 
and it just cha- know, it changed uh, warfare. It made linear, linear warfare impossible. Absolutely. And did you know that it actually was not officially adapted by the U.S. Army and military until 1866 after the war was already over? Yeah, I was reading like a lot of generals actually bought them privately. Like they just owned yeah, them. with their own money and they just, just dragged them like, to the front let, line. Let me just have this. Yeah, and they're like, oh man, the war's coming out now. I have these Gatling guns. I can use them. And then, yeah, crazy. so it was like it was like someone's private yeah. gun. First Amendment, First Amendment, Second Amendment. First, I'm sorry, Second Amendment. That's right. You know, because you're looking at you know this idea that. I, technically, the army didn't have it official until after the war was already over. A couple other things. I, I guess one we we probably should talk about is the balloon core. Yes, I saw. I, remember, I was reading. I remember. I remember seeing that, and hearing about that, and also finding it in some of the research. Also, yeah. Yeah, and, and for the most part, I mean, it was there were reconnaissance. You know, uh, the balloons were were meant for reconnaissance. But once they got up there, they started throwing things down. Whether it was rocks or bricks or anything along those lines. Yeah. Uh, and there really wasn't any risk being shot down because primarily the Civil War era rifle just couldn't, you know, really be that effective in hitting a target no. that far away. Yeah. I mean, they could hardly hit a target in front of them. Whoever was in the balloon corps was kind of treated more like a like a joke, even at the time. They weren't really treated as military personnel. They ran really in, until like the First World War. And in, in the First World War, too, that's what those you know, early pilots did before they started mounting the machine guns. They would just like drop like hooks, right? Bricks, bombs, anything yeah. on the enemy tr- on the enemy uh, trenches. It was just one of these things. Um, I know the military doesn't fully develop a official balloon air corps until um, 1893. Yep. In, in Kansas. Fort Riley, Kansas. Yeah, Fort Riley. Yeah. That's right. So it takes a while before they're actually like seen and used like all the time, but they are using the early parts of the war. I remember in that Ken's Burn documentary, they were they, he had a little bit about them. Remember that old Ken Burns documentary, yeah, yep, Civil yep. War. I know he talks about like the Bloom Corps a little bit and and stuff like that. So they get like referenced, but they're not really talked about as much as probably maybe they should. It's an interesting story. Maybe that's something that we can do in a future podcast. Look into these like unsung heroes of some of these wars, you know. Something like the balloon core and stuff like that. Because there's really, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of information out there on them themselves. Do you have anything else before we uh, hop on to uh, World War One? Yeah, again, this, um, this war was just you know such a brutal war. I saw things like the double cannon, right? I'm sure you saw that. Like it was just a cannon. This looked like a two. Well, that was still Civil War. Yeah, Civil War. Yeah, Civil War. Civil War. Yeah, it was supposed to have. It was connected. It was connected by a chain, right? And there was supposed to. The idea was both supposed to fire at the same time. The two cannonballs were connected by this chain, and they were supposed to just go swing in and just, you know, wipe in everything. Wipe, wipe out, yeah, if they would do that. I know the the um, I know the Confederates had their sub. We and the um, the North had a sub too. They used the alligator. I remember seeing that a little bit. But again, I think that for like for Civil War, like we were saying, they're, they're just you know putting these weapons out there and seeing what they can you know work. There's you know a lot of pike weapons yeah. and stuff like that because it's still a lot of hand to hand combat. And that's when World War, World War One kind of gets, uh, you know, this one's a, definitely a trench war. And yes. you could tell that just based on the type of weapons that were very much suited, created some very bizarre, very weird, and some really revolutionary for the future that came out of World War One. So let's kind of jump into World War One, Tom. Um, well, one thing, obviously, you know, trench warfare uh, comes, you know, into play big time in World War One. So one thing that both sides were trying to kind of figure out was, um, before the tank comes, I kind of like change it. That's obviously revolutionary, right? Breaks the trench warfare and stuff like yeah. that. But one of the things I found that um, I always go over my classes were the um, the fake trees. I'm sure you saw I this. I love the fake trees. Right? The fake trees <laughs> and, the, and, and the fake trees. Something. They actually were like really effective too. Like these, they, they said just, they were very effective. Yeah. yeah. They looked like trees. They were like hollowed out, you know, camouflage. And they were just like put them up at night 
So a lot of times if people didn't realize what the landscape was, oh, there was a tree there, or they would actually just like uproot a tree or move a tree and put them next to them and stuff and like that's that. that's what gets me because it was always put in no man's land, right? And it was yeah. it at a night. So it was basically a, like a fake tree. It was made out of uh, canvas and chicken wire. Yeah. And they would put a you know a sniper in it and they would set this tree up in the middle of no man's land in the middle of the night. And like you said, in the morning, you know, the sun would come up and someone's looking through the binoculars and they're like, oh, a tree. Okay, I guess there's a tree there. Not knowing that there was a sniper in there and that wasn't a real tree. But at the same time, wouldn't it be weird? They're like, hey, everything's destroyed in no man's land, but there's a tree. There's a tree, yeah. And imagine being <laughs> that guy sitting in there. Like you're just yeah, sitting know, right? in this like, it's a canvas and chicken wire tree. We're like, yeah. you're in no man's land. You know, everyone, everyone else, if you know, you know you're going to be killed as soon as they figure out that there's a sniper in there. I mean, that's just yeah. got to be crazy. Yeah, and they would leave you there for the whole day. So you're, there, you're, you're, there, you're there the whole day. Yeah, because no one's going to get you. You were there for 24 yeah. hours yeah, inside no one's, this no one's fake there to get tree. It's like a lookout or a sniper. Yeah. I thought that was really cool, too. I remember the first time I kind of learned this years ago, I was like, I would not want to be that guy. I mean, you know, no. kind of, again, going with this idea of trench to trench and also uh, no man's land. You have a lot of like hand weapons oh, in yeah. case you make it into a trench and or someone makes it to your trench. But they're like medieval. Uh, what, yeah, very medieval. Like one of them that really kind of stands out to me is the Gauntlet Dagger. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've ever seen Enter the Dragon uh, with Bruce Lee in the 70s, you know, where you have the one bad guy, the villain that kind of switches on these fake hands. And and he's got like the he, one of them, I think, was like a Gauntlet Dagger. It also reminds me of like Robocop, you know, when he like did that thing with his hand and like this dagger shot out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's basically, this look like yeah, you would use it this just like to a, pierce, to go through, you know, like the art, like someone's uh, helmet. You're jumping down into yeah. the trench. We ever see a trench knife? Like that's basically I the same thing yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, that's what but this I, was yeah, attached to, like a glove. Yeah, it was yeah. like a fisted glove. Literally, yeah. it's like metal a fisted armor. glove. Yeah, metal armor glove. Yeah, metal armor fist, and you would put your fist into this metal armor fist that had this dagger sticking out of it, yeah. and you literally would just jump into. What do you the call trench it? and just start the swinging, trench, just, start just start swinging, swinging. Start or stabbing. just stabbing, really, just yeah. stabbing people. Could be very brutal. I thought I was, I thought I was, yeah, insane. just like you said, it's very similar, like from the uh, Enter the Dragon area. It may remind yeah. me that, um, my father made my wife, well, she obviously was my girlfriend at the time, but made my future wife sit and watch that movie with him. <laughs> it's actually not a bad movie, and Enter the Dragon, and she, yeah, but yeah, you, but yeah, but yeah, I know, but that's something like, yeah, it's, not it's something really, you want to do. It's not really her, her type of movie. <laughs> But yeah, I just remember that. Yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. That was actually developed by the uh, British and the French, this gauntlet dagger. But, you know, going along with these like trench, you know, warfare, you have a lot of the trench clubs. Yeah, the clubs, they called them. They find big sticks and just put nails and nails in it. Yeah, like this is like Walking Dead style, you know? Yeah, Walking Dead. That's what I was saying. This is like zombie. These weapons look like they would work really well in like the zombie apocalypse. Absolutely. Weighed with lead, fitted with iron spikes. And they said that like sometimes they called it like officer's walking stick. And they look yeah. different for each of the nations. But the French had them, the Germans had them, the British had them. They were basically like baseball bats with yeah. blunt spikes. objects made to kill. Crazy. Well, especially when this is supposed to be like a first modern war, right? Like you're using airplanes, they're using, you know, like uh, machine guns and stuff like that. Poison gas. But when it comes down to it, they're still just using sticks to just yeah. like wipe each other out. And something you alluded to before. When, you know, World War One becomes the real first aerial war. And at first, planes, just like balloons, were being used as reconnaissance. So as planes were going up, sometimes the pilots were like, you know, what? let me bring a couple of stones and rocks for me. I'll, I'll drop them on the other side. And then they were like, you know, what? let me let me bring some bricks. 
And then it was, let me bring some dynamite. But then the opposing side would also get up there uh, with their own planes. So they're like, oh, let me bring a gun. So they started bring, you know, bringing pistols. But they're like, you know, let me bring a machine gun. And then eventually they figured out how to mount a machine gun. And it was just like an evolution all within just the period of this one world war. But one thing that was kind of, I found to be kind of a bizarre weapon. Um, I don't know if you saw this, the aerial darts. Yes, I saw those. Yeah. Based like <laughs> giant lawn darts. If you guys see the game lawn darts, these just giant metal darts. They do drop. Yeah. From the, uh, from the plane. Oh, right? they drop them from the plane. Yeah. And they said that essentially these darts um, with feathers behind them. So they would always go straight down super fast. They would drop them from the aircraft onto troops and cavalry formations below. And it was super silent. You know, as they dropped, you wouldn't know that there was this dart that was big dropping at you. They said it would pierce helmets. It would just, you know, kill people, go through their heads. Insane stuff. Again, I thought that was kind of a bizarre weapon. Well, you also used to just take giant hooks and like a giant like fish hook. And they would just like drop that, pull it as the plane flew, like right through the trench. And again, even if that doesn't kill you, that just, I mean, obviously that could kill you, but if that just comes in like gashes and gives you like a gash in your arm on your torso or something, that's going to get infected instantly in those trenches. A couple other odd things that came out here, again, stemming from trench warfare and not wanting to kind of stick your head out because, uh, you know, you'd be dead. Uh, you probably saw this too, the periscope rifle, right? So you mm-hmm. had a, you know, allowed a soldier sensor to take aim from trenches where it was like a wire connected to the trigger and then it was a mirror. Yeah, which looked, looked into over it, yeah. It sounds. Yeah, reflected it, it looked exactly like how it sounds, basically. Yeah, it was a periscope rifle, and then there was the grenade catapult that was created by the British, and then the grenade crossbow that was perfected from the catapult by the French. That was kind of interesting too. Yeah, like I'm supposed just, to throw in the grenades, yeah, just to get ahead. a little, just to get a little bit farther, right? Like anything that yeah, just kind that's of all it was. get them down yeah. there, get them farther, and because hopefully you you want to, you know you want to get farther away this way, drop you shoot the grenade you know a few feet farther and then get them. You know, that's yeah. basically what they're trying to do there. Yeah, and if the French uh, French crossbow looked kind of cool. I mean, it was big. It wasn't like a cross, like a hand crossbow. Yeah, it was kind right. of a big crossbow. It was spring-loaded, and same thing. You would put a, a grenade in it, and it would just go. It was kind of crazy. And then there's a, a few things that were not necessarily weapons, but I thought they were interesting. But uh, one was an anti-gas fan. Did you see that? Yeah, it's just basically a bunch of fans. Literally, like a fan. Yeah. Like, like a giant, like <laughs> what you would see in like, those like old, like, Egyptian movies, right? Like the fan, the Pharaoh and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. They, so they gave to the British soldiers, like they gave out like a hundred thousand of these, right? To British soldiers, like this anti-gas fan. So they're like, if you see a weird color or a fog coming towards you, it might be mustard gas or any, some form of uh, gas. So what you need to do is you need to stand there and literally fan it away from yourself. It's so not, I mean, I don't want to say funny because I don't want to be that guy that has, you know, mustard gas coming out. Yeah, but also, who's going <laughs> to fan I know it's before, like the, before they had the gas mask, obviously. But like, yeah. you're just going to stand there and let this let's envelop you. Like, there's no way you're going to be pushing like that gas away. Even if you oh. push the one right in front of you a little bit, it's you're not. It's not going to be enough to keep it from surrounding you. Oh, it's absolutely. It's one of these concepts. Like, oh, this is gas. We'll just fan it away. It's not that simple. As again, they just no like way. they just let's just manufacture it, get it out there. It also probably made the troops, you know, feel like I'm not worried about gas because we have our gas fans. So if they do attack, we can just fan it back at them. It's like, yeah, no. Craziness. But. A couple of things that were odd from World War One. One was spy pigeons. I did. So obviously that. pigeons were being used in World War One as a means of communications. Yeah. Communications. communications. Absolutely. And but the spy pigeons, 
again, kind of ahead of its time. So the Germans thought of this, and what they did is they would they created a very small time delay camera that had kind of like a like a trigger on it that they, through time delay it would just take pictures every like few minutes, and they would mount these on like a little small tiny harness on these pigeons, and it would send these pigeons out to take pictures. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. Well, yeah, again, then, it's, it's like a drone, like how they would use drones. That's what it was. It's like first drone. Now, you know? But they don't, you know, have that technology. Let's just strap something to these birds and see what happens, you know? Absolutely. And then another thing that um, that I also found that was kind of, again, kind of funny, I guess. As the war was starting, uh, they, they came out with British like bicycle battalions. Did you mm-hmm. see that? I did there see that. It was some, a Kent remember- Cyclist Battalion. You know, it was touted as like the new form of cavalry before the war started. They're like, oh, horses are going to be obsolete. The bicycle is going to really be the, you know, the new cavalry. And then, you know, trench warfare happened and that was the end of the bicycle. Yeah, because that's like a cavalry. Although in World War II, when they were dropping, parachuting people behind enemy lines, they would often parachute them with like these, they talk about, you know, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself, but they would drop them with these kind of odd little tiny bicycles that they would click in and put together which is kind of cool but there's a lot of um you're talking about those uh, there's also a lot of um like defensive weapons they try to do i don't know if you saw some of those but the one yeah. the, the one that i found that was just the most odd um was the um brewster's body shield so if you're at home looking you have like you know a few minutes if you're bored one day just look up a picture of the brewster body shield and you, you think it has to be made up it almost looks like one of those like emoji faces on it but it's like this body armor that the soldiers would wear and it would repel like, you know, um, some rifle fire, but it was just so cumbersome and so heavy and also left you totally exposed in some other areas. Um, but again, it's yeah. just a way, it's like the bulletproof one, we can, we, we're, we're immune. But yeah, even though you're, the bullets aren't piercing the armor, you're, you're not going to be able to move and the, the force of the bullet is still going to knock you over and then a, a mortar is going to come and you can't walk anyway, you know? So it just, you know, but just how it looks, it looks like comical. It's got like these little like flaps that covered like on the top where the eyes would be and stuff like that. Like a, the cutout where you could see from almost looks like a mouth. It just, it's just, I don't know why, how they thought that was going to be a good idea and how that was going to work. But it was like the beginning of body armor, you know? You having these new machine yeah. guns, I need something to protect from it. Definitely not Kevlar. <laughs> not, no, yet. No, not yet. Not, it's not there. Do you have anything else for World War One before we jump into the. I mean, the there's, a, there's a ton of World War One, but I want to get into World War Two because World War Two has the stuff that. You know, some of it's odd, some of it failed, and some was really revolutionary and stuck around. And I think World War Two weapons is really kind of. The, the premise of this episode, I, I think that yeah, so we were going to make it just was, World War Two, but yeah. we started to add a few other. We figured we'll give it a little intro to it, yeah, with the other intro, wars, just to but, see that it wasn't the only war this happened in. Yeah, all right, let's talk about some World War Two stuff. And again, Tom and I don't share our notes prior to this, nor do we share our research, so we we really are talking about this for the first time right now. Every time you guys hear us, so with that in mind, what do you got for me, Tom? Well, let's start off. I'm going to start off with probably it's one of my favorite ones. So I'm just going outright for it. I've seen it. I saw it on a bunch of when I was doing research, but I knew about it from you know years ago. Um, and I always I even talk about this one with my students when I used to teach World War II because I just thought it was interesting. So we all know that the United States was developing you know the Manhattan Project, which in its own right you can say that was a weird weapon, right? The atomic bomb was it going to work? Was it wasn't? But they were also planning other ways, right? So one of these crazy things that they were developing was actually called the bat bombs. And what this thing, what it was, was they were going to, they, and it was in development, like it was in practical development. They were going to use it. So the atomic bomb kind of said, oh, we don't need to use this weapon anymore. But it was a way to try to uh, end the war in Japan. And the plan was that 
let's get they round up hundreds of thousands of bats and they would take all these bats and put them in a canister and on each bat was like a little like vest and the plan was you drop these bats over japan during the day and what's going to happen is or in twilight the bats because they're nocturnal are going to find a dark spot now how most japanese architecture was like those like curved up awnings so the idea was the bats would go underneath those and like just like you know grab on perch onto there and then the timer on their vest would go off and the bat would be covered in like a napalm type substance and basically start spreading fire everywhere. Because, you know, you set an animal on fire. Don't do that at home, obviously, hopefully. Indeed. You guys aren't like, you know, uh, yeah, John Wayne Gacy's <laughs> over there, right? But like, you know, the bat goes on fire. It's going to flip out. It's going to be flying all over the place. And the idea is it's going to spread the fire. It's going to burn down all the Japanese um, houses and industry and um, stuff like that. And it's going to burn on the Japanese cities. And that was the plan. The big problem, why it was, what they were trying to figure out was when the bombers flew at very high altitude, the bats would freeze. So they would drop them. They wouldn't like unfreeze in time to, you know, fly to where they wanted to go. They, it worked fine in field tests when they practiced it, but actually in um, like the actual flying that height and dropping them, it was pretty unsuccessful, but um, it would have worked. Um, theoretically, just you know, having the bats there, they're going to set on fire, burn down the Japanese cities. Uh, but the atomic bomb was further along, so they just kind of scrapped the project after the after they knew the Manhattan Project worked in um, July of '45. I thought that was crazy. You know, bats could crazy. have ended the war. You know, going along with animals, uh, the Russian suicide bomb dogs. Yes, those dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So what they would do is the Russians, specifically, right after the Germans, um, you know. Invaded it's like Stalingrad, uh, it's like Stalingrad Leningrad yeah. type stuff, yeah. So what they did is they basically trained these dogs. They starved these dogs, and then they attached explosives to them. And then what they would do is they would train them by putting food, meat, underneath tanks. So after they would release these starved dogs, they would run under a tank, and they kept on training them that way. So that way, once they were in battle, they would release them, and these dogs would run under... German tanks, and that's when they would detonate. So the way they trained them is uh, once they were underneath the tank, they actually were kind of instructed and conditioned to pull out the detonator cord, and only then they would receive some food. So they would literally like pull their own trigger, you might say. Yeah. But the problem was that once the battle started and it was extremely loud, the dogs just kind of couldn't execute the yes. task. They're yeah. kind of freaked out. And they would often turn around and run towards the Russian handler. You know what I mean? They want to help. They're like, yeah, because they were like freaked yeah. out by the noise in the battle. No, the battles weren't actually going on with a field test. Um, yeah. And the dogs might have been hungry, but they'd rather live <laughs> than be hungry. Exactly. You know? And, you know, sadly, as soon as they ran back, they were often shot and killed right on sight because there was a fear that they were going to run back with that explosive. So, yeah. again, kind of sad. But there's one other story that's very bizarre from world war ii that also deals with animals um you i mean you probably heard this again it's kind of a famous story for my fellow polish people out there have you ever heard of wojtek the bear um i remember you telling me about him i thought you yeah. were going around, i thought you were talking about some of the, the, the pigeon guided missiles which we can talk about yeah later on the next one but, but um let's I, heard, I, I remember i remember this in one of our chats yeah and i remember yeah. reading about it too yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so was yeah. so the British. So British soldiers were um, given a baby cub bear, uh, mm -hmm. you know, beginning of the war, and they didn't know what to do with this little cub. So they gave it to a Polish corps, artillery corps, that was part of the British army. And this Polish corps 
started to feed this bear milk um, and eventually saw a little bit of vodka. And then the treat was uh, cigarettes and beer. The, the bear, I actually got the bear to smoke cigarettes and drink beer. And that was like his treat. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. And they taught him how to salute on command and how to get on his, you know, two hind legs. And again, they literally turned him into like a little pet. Now, when they were moving, in order to move, you know, when they were going to invasion of Sicily and then Italy, they wouldn't let any corps bring a pet. So what the Polish um, artillery corps did is they actually drafted him as a private. So therefore, they gave him a, like a pay book um, and he got a rank and they brought him with him to the invasion of Italy. During a battle of Monte Cassino in Italy, he, they would bring him out to where they were shelling um, the Germans and the bear would just kind of watch what they were doing. And before you know it, he started carrying crates of ammo, just like the soldiers kept on bringing the crates of ammo. And, you know, carrying them well to the cannons, he started doing that. So throughout the entire battle, he just literally brought over more and more ammo. And then when the war ended, that entire unit was brought back to Scotland. Um, they all disbanded. And he lived in a zoo until 1963. And he passed away at the age of 21. And they said even, you know, in his 60s, he still always loved people, wave of people, and always wanted beer. Which I thought was... Uh, <laughs> Kind of a crazy, you know, bizarre story. Remembering his war days, you know? Yeah, I think it's a crazy story. One of those stories that just like, you know, kind of gets lost in the history books. You know, that's not stuff that the history books are necessarily going to talk about, but it makes the, not only more interesting, I think it also makes the war, like these stories more human, you know, like these, what these soldiers are doing to just try to pass the time and stay sane themselves, you know, get their mind off of like what's going on around them, you know, they raise this bear, you know, why not? It's just crazy no, enough that we're fighting this nuts. war. Raising a bear is giving a bear beer is not nothing compared to fighting in this war. So what do you got? What else you got? Well, there's a whole bunch of other ones. Um, I kind of talked about it a few minutes ago, but it was actually like, we know that the Japanese had like the suicide bombers, right? And the most famous type of like the kamikazes, but you also had the ones called the, um, the Oka, which um, is in Japanese actually means um, like death blossom. But in, the Americans call it the baka, which meant idiot in Japanese, because what it basically was, was a, it would be dropped from a plane and it was a th- three-stage rocket. Uh, and it was made to fly, you know, a person would be flying. There's a kamikaze rocket-powered missile, base, a person-powered missile, basically. And it would fly into um, U.S. ships to try to take them down or fly into bomber formations to try to blow them all up. Um, it had a few minor successes, but it had a little impact on the war. By that point, there was nothing the Japanese, you know, could do. And, um, but it kind of showed their, their, how desperate they were. We also had something similar to us and the British were working on also our own kind of a like guided missile system, but we weren't putting people inside. We were putting a pigeon inside and how mm-hmm. it worked was you fire this projectile at like a ship and how they train these pigeons is they would have an image of a ship in front of them and then it would go away obviously as the missile kind of, kind of like swayed. So they would have to like peck on a, on like a little pad and it, the pad would like um, adjust the rudders 
on the missile. Like they make it go left and right and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And more food would come out as long as the ship image was like right in front of them. So that's how they got trained. So the idea was you shoot at a ship and they can look through the little window and they're going to see the ship and we don't, they don't see the ship anymore. They're veering off of the ship. They're going to peck at the, the window to get more food to come out. So as they're getting the more food and they, uh, as they're pecking at the window, it becomes um, you know more straight and then just flies into the ship. So we were willing to sacrifice pigeons to, uh, that was kind of like, that was going to be the, those were the first guided missile systems basically for the U S and the British Navy. Um, never really put into combat because it turns out like same thing. In field tests, it might work, but then in actual combat with all the other things going on, the pigeons kind of got more freaked out with like surviving than just, uh, you know, pecking to get a couple, you know, get some food. Wow. But again, just again, using animals is kind of like, you know, the computer chips, you know, that's kind of how I, yeah. I see it, you know, it's like the drones. Wow. So those sorts of things. Did you, uh, did you ever read about the British aerial minefield? No, that one I haven't heard of. So, so the British, uh, created this projectile rocket launcher that they put on their, you know, um, ships. And it was kind of like a initial first anti-aircraft measure. What it would do is, I guess the premise was to kind of protect them from any enemy planes above them. So what it would do is this projectile, this rocket launcher would shoot this projectile, fire it right up from a ship. And then once it reached about a thousand feet in elevation, it would explode and disperse these little mines that were attached to these little tiny parachutes. It's kind of insane. And then these mines were all in the parachutes were actually connected by these little thin wires. So it created like wow. a Isn't like that? a minefield. You know what I mean? The problem was that it was very much visible by the pilots. So once the pilots, the German pilots were aware that there's this aerial minefield, they kind of just avoided it and flew past it. And often they would just never really detonate. They would just kind of be at the mercy of the wind and eventually just slowly flow down and get back into the British ships that fired them, which, again, there's no records ever of this being successful, but they did try to create this anti-aircraft minefield, you know, aerial minefield, which I thought was kind of a, a cool failed weapon of World War II. Well, another one that kind of goes with that, again, it's trying to piece air power is such a major component, right, in World War II, right? It's a major, it's used in a bunch of different ways, you know, just devastating cities. That's why you have so many more civilian casualties in World War II is basically because of the aircraft, right? So um, that was with the British making that whole thing. And I saw one of the German anti-aircraft weapons that Hitler wanted to use was actually, it was called Hitler's wind cannon. If you saw this one and uh, they actually built it. It was actually, they actually managed to create it. And the, the Nazis were famous for like making these like, you know, those super weapons, these massive things. Remember like that big Bertha gun and all these real oh, guns and Bertha stuff gun, like yeah. that, you know, and in World War One they had the Paris gun, like these massive, massive things. They didn't realize all that resource and manpower to make that one were better off making like, a couple hundred of something that was more effective, but they did actually manage to make, create this um, wind cannon. And it, the whole idea was it was used like this chemical explosive and it would launch this massive gust of um, air and water vapor into the sky. And it would create like severe turbulence. And the idea was that it would, you know, knock out enemy aircraft just in the sky, just by making these bursts of turbulence and knock them down. And he hoped that it would, um, you know, be used to destroy the allied heavy bombers it just uh, the war ended before it could ever actually be used. It did was it was able to knock out wooden planes very easily, and they believe they made a higher charge. It could knock out like the metal planes and stuff. But the war ended before it was actually put into actual service. They just had like the prototypes and stuff like that. But I thought it was an interesting way. Let's use wind to kind of like you know knock down these planes. Anyway, it's like the German. You know, the Germans were definitely ahead of their time when it comes to 
I think that's also why they have a decent amount of failed weapons because they also have they the were most trying probably so many trying you have so to remember much, yeah. too they were fighting and we are, we are not you know supporting the Germans in any way in World War Two no, but no they're fighting the most they're fighting the larger armies right they're worried they're worried about a two front war you know especially in 1941 when, he, when the United States gets involved right everything starts to turn on them they need these super weapons that's what Hitler really thought Hitler thought these super weapons were going to be what was going to like win him because he had success with the V one in V2 rockets, which I'm sure we can talk about, right? They were planning their own atomic bomb projects. Like he, they had, they had these super weapons already. They had the first, you know, operational jets with the Messerschmitts, you know? Yep. So they, they had those things in the rocket, the rocket comet we can talk about, but it's those sorts of weapons. So they definitely had success with a lot of these weapons. So we thought, Hey, every one of these weapons is going to be a success. That was, that was, that was their plan. Yeah. Other German thing that it actually didn't really fail. It just, I guess arrived a little too late. Did you ever read or see anything about the little remote controlled demolition tanks that the Germans made? Yeah, I remember hearing about them. Yeah, yeah. So the Americans called them doodle bugs. Yes, it was called. Essentially, it was really called the Goliath. There were these little tiny tanks, uh, and they were radar controlled. And at first, they were actually it was the wire attached to it. Before, towards the end of the war, by like forty five, the Germans finally figured out how to make it radio controlled. But this were like the very first like radio controlled weaponry. So these little tanks with a joystick, they would run on a joystick, were operated by this controller guy that was however many feet away or yards away. And then what he would do is, I think the cable they said was over 2,000 feet long to the, you know, to the back of the controller. And this mini tank was powered by these two electric motors, eventually replaced by gas burners. It was about the size of, I would say, your standard good old lawnmower, you know, without the handle because it was low to the ground. It would essentially go underneath uh, whether it was a truck or another tank and it would blow up. And eventually the Americans and the British and the French kind of figured it out what it was. And they started cutting those, those cords, wires the wires. Yeah. And that's what kind of brought Germany to really perfect the radio control models. And they did. So there's about 7,500 Goliaths that were built during the war which kind of suggests that they actually did meet with some success considering that they built so many of them. I thought that was a kind of a cool weapon. That's what we use today. Like that's a drone, you know, like that's what we would call it today. We have the guys find the drones from like, you know, a base in Nevada and they're over, you know, in the middle East doing what they're doing. Um, And I'm kind of, you know, I'm sorry, I'm skipping, but there's one other thing when you talk about this wind cannon, there's just one other, it was a failed weapon. That's probably why I forgot about it that much, but, do you remember where the Japanese would set up these explosives um, during World War II and they would put them on these balloons and they kind of hoped that these balloons were going to well, just yeah. the wind so, is going to take them well, and carry them in a jet stream? Was, yeah, they, they discovered the jet stream. The Japanese, the, yeah. the Western world had no idea about the jet stream. The Japanese discover it. So they figured we'd take these weather balloons and strap explosives on it, these incendiary bombs. And yeah. what their plan was, was that they were going to release them. They would follow the jet stream and go and take the West Coast of the United States. And they knew that, oh, the West Coast is like, you know, tons and tons of, you know, woodlands, forests. Yeah. So we're going to set the entire, you know, West Coast on fire with all these balloon bombs. And there is actually footage of these balloon bombs, like flying over American soil, getting shot down by pilots and stuff like that. And uh, most of them don't even get here, but I'm sure I don't want to. Yeah. And one of them did actually go off. Yep. Yeah. Well, there was, was about 9,000 of them sent over. Yeah. 
right? They said yeah. only about thir- three hundred or so were ever recorded by American authorities to um, yeah. to that they saw them, and only like you said, only a few made landfall. Uh, and the only really damage, the biggest threat and damage wise from it was starting wildfires. So it never really hurt. Yeah, but then we purposely did not report the wildfires because we didn't want the Japanese to know that that's what was happening. And yeah. then, but it, it does, it's like one of those interesting footnotes, a bad footnote actually in history, because it, the only um, American homeland civilian casualties of World War II happened because of those bombs. There was a um, family picnic family. In, in California yeah. and the, um, they saw it laying there, didn't know what it was. And it was like a mother, I think like the aunt and like the kids and like the nanny or something. And the kids ran over to it and they moved it because they didn't know what it was. And it yeah. went off and it killed them all. That was the only one. That was the only like a civilian casualties. And I, again, I'm jumping because that's what we do. That's I, I feel like I tell my Back students all the time that I distract myself more than anybody else. Oh, I was doing me. that so much on Friday. <laughs> Friday. Me too. Me I too. I was like, was- ooh, fly. Boom. Yeah, I feel so bad. <laughs> um, so for those of you that are listening that – you know, are or have once been our students, you know. Yeah, okay, what else you got for me? Uh, the interesting one that I found was actually, this one was um, actually come, came into place uh, because of uh, Churchill. It's after the fall of France, you know, Britain's really worried. This is, you know, 30, uh, 1939, 1940. They're really worried about what's going to happen with Britain. Churchill vowed to set Europe ablaze. That was one of these. So the secret agents came up with a bunch of these weird ways to like um, disguise bombs. So they would disguise bombs that look like soap, shoes, you know, anything you could think of and put them in um, suitcases. And what they f- figured out was they t- um, basically they would take a, um, a pencil, strap a fuse to it, put some explosive on it, and then they would um, capture rats and they would insert these into the rat. Okay. Like use your imagination from that. And it was basically they did this to like hundreds, maybe even thousands of rats. And they would then just um, let let these rats go, like inside um, German-held buildings in like France yeah. and stuff like that. Or and basically, they would go into like the gutters and stuff like that. And eventually, the explosive would go off, and it would hopefully blow up the buildings, say you know, go blow up the boiler, stuff like that. But that was their strategy. So, and since you're talking about deception, I feel like we definitely need to talk about the ghost army. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Essentially, the United States hires. Hollywood special effects crews. And what they do is they create blow up tanks. And by blow up, I mean like think of like when you guys go to, you know, like a carnival or something. Like they created inflatable tanks, inflatable trucks, inflatable Jeeps. They created an entire inflatable army, um, which became known as the Ghost Army. And what they would do is they would place this army. They also had sound effects. The huge speakers with sound effects to kind of uh, make you know it's make really it seem like these tanks too. were on. It was a yeah. show. It was a complete show, and they deceived the Germans so many times, actually numerous times, by creating this this fake army and just placing thousands of these supposed you know vehicles and tanks in random places, which would force the Germans to split their army to try to counter where they thought the attack was going to come from. Well, the biggest Meanwhile, is they do that in D-Day, right? Like that's how they that's yeah, one that's thing. how they got D-Day. They really convinced yeah. Hitler that they're gonna attack at Calais, not Normandy, because of yeah. that. And they yeah, and well, another thing to really really make it sink well, they, in is they put, uh, you have yeah. that the Ghost Army and they even said that Patton is Patton going to be in charge, in charge yeah. of this they army. Everyone was afraid of Patton. Well um, Hitler the Germans knew Patton from North Africa. Yes, and Patton at this point was actually suspended by Eisenhower for like you know slapping those soldiers in yeah. the um, in the infirmaries in the hospitals, yeah. and 
and the Germans were like, that has to be fake. There's no way you're going to not have your best general, or one of your best generals lead this invasion. You know, this, this is obviously fake. So Hitler didn't believe that Patton was actually suspended during this time, which he was. He was not involved in the invasion. And there was no, no plan of putting Patton in. They're like, no, he's too much of a wild card. That just shows like the different, you know, mindsets. Yeah, you know, they bring him back when uh, when poop hits the fan and you have Battle of the Bulge. They're like, yeah, they right, did when you need time. him. Yeah, they'll bring him back. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I was saying before. I went to Patton's museum. It's at uh, it's at Fort Knox, so you actually have to get into Fort Knox. You have to get like a whole day pass, yeah, and they have to exactly. run like your license. Um, I brought myself and my two sons there. It's actually a really cool museum. I bet, yeah. Patton, we should do something about Patton. That's a whole other cool story. All right, we'll but, have to do Patton at some point. Yeah, we when we start getting to some people again. Yeah, you know what's interesting about the the Ghost Army is that their story was actually kept secret until it was declassified in 1996. You know, I was I didn't know that. I didn't I know remember that. hearing about it, but that makes sense. Yeah, because we that were like, yeah, yeah, we went through and find out about. And then, it. like PBS did like a documentary on it, the Ghost Army in 2013. But yeah, they talk about it all the time. Like it's even in like. No, it's like it's yeah, but I didn't know that it was kept secret until 1996. Like yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of that stuff it has to. We have to wait till the last people are gone before it becomes de- declassified. You know. Yeah. So that was that was cool. All right, what else you got? I have a Porsche, uh, the Porsche tank that Hitler tried to make. It was supposed to be the biggest tank ever. It was made by. Porsche, the guy that makes, you know, or made the Porsche, you know, the sign. At the time, the they, called the they, just, they always wanted to make things just bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger, but they don't get the bigger things are. It's also the manpower, the resources, and then it's a, yeah. it's a bigger target, you know? It's just a bigger target. Yeah, and this thing was like 200 tons. It was yeah. huge. Like, yeah, it's going to wipe anything out, but how maneuverable is it going to be? What's it really going to be able to do, you know? Yeah, they honestly, they ran out of money. It never really was created. Well, yeah, a lot of those. Like, I think the one I was just going to talk about was like, um, and then they found a couple of these. And if you ever see the movie um, Captain America, the first Avenger, they, they kind of show them there. It's a little more advanced than what would be in real life, but obviously. But those mm-hmm. they were called the Amerabombers, right? Mm-hmm. Which was basically, it looked like a stealth bomber. Um, like what we would call like the first generation stealth bombers. And they were these bombers that the uh, Germans were building for a planned bombing raid on New York City, basically. That like they were going to, when they were going to invade or drop bombs on New York City, that these they were going to be the first transcontinental type of planes, like experimental jet engines and stuff like that. And they would fly from Germany all the way to the United States and drop the bombs there. And that, that, that was their plan. And we did find like early prototypes of them in some of these like launching pads, mountain labs, whatever you want to call it, that the Germans were doing that, you know, obviously were stopped when the war ended. But we, we were on that list. They, you know, the Germans still believed up until the end, you know, they, at least Hitler did a lot of things in the circle that there was going to be some way to win this war that if we, we're going to have to bring the war to the Americans. So that was going to be one of their main things, having those long range bombers because they didn't have those when they went into Russia. That was one of those big problems too with Russia, which we should probably do something on that too, like that failure of the blitzkrieg in Russia at some point. You know, we you know? never do. We keep on like, saying what well, we do these podcasts. Like we keep on saying what we should do and we never write this down. And then we, we never write down. down. And we're like, oh, what should we do this next one on? We have no idea. I should listen to our own podcast. That's fine. That would be a good idea too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how about the, uh, again, sticking with the Germans here. Um, how about the curved barrel assault rifle? Did that's when that? I could shoot around. I would shoot around corners, corners right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We have those um, now. We have those now. They do. They actually they pivot do like a Nerf now. gun. They like pivot, yeah. But this is actually a curved barrel one. Yeah, I did see those. Yeah. Did they actually work? I have no idea if they worked or not. Well, back then, see, the thing is they didn't make an actual gun for it. They made an attachment there, to the yeah. gun. So the oftentimes the, when the bullet would come out, it would like dislodge the attachment and then like blow up right on there. 
So it, it failed a lot, but the concept was definitely revived for modern weapons. I mean, it's it's a thing. Again, it's a prototype. They're just throwing out there. Field test is going to be different. See, yeah. see what it works. See and then the one work. that I remember seeing a video for, I don't know if it was one of those old documentaries by like, you know, secret weapons or something. Do you remember the Panja drum? Panja? I think I'm saying that right. It was this invasion weapon. It was like this big drum. Um, I would say a, probably six feet tall in diameter. And mm-hmm. it had... Um, the like rocket, it was basically two rocket propelled wheels held together inside by a drum. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The drum, okay. Yeah, yes. the drum was filled with explosives. And the premise was that, um, this was a British weapon that they would release this drum and it would go so fast because it would be propelled by these rockets that these wheels would literally make it jump on water and it would just yeah. go spinning super fast, jump on water, and then get on land where it would continue up the you know whatever beach it is in this case they were trying to destroy hitler's atlantic wall eventually what we do in d-day and you know they would just crash into something and blow up and you could see videos of this on youtube i mean this thing's crazy but they actually used those to destroy a uh, bounce on water right yep i remember they used those to destroy if they were developed and used the plan for the Atlantic wall but they also used it in a mission and it blew up they didn't know at the time but they blew up the uh, hard water plant that the Germans were using, and that kind of stalled their efforts to make their atomic bomb. And I know they mm-hmm. used that bomb, those barrel drums, on the on that bombing raid. So I thought that was so kind of interesting. Yeah, they said well, oftentimes what used to happen is these the rocket that were propelling the wheels, the rockets would disattach and just start flying, yeah. and then the thing would sink. That's what they were worried about, but it actually worked in that one that you know a few times. And one of them was when they destroyed the uh, hard German hard water plant. Which yeah. then delayed them to be able to make their own atomic bomb. Yeah, this is one of those. It's one of those things. Well, also we're getting today with the whole idea of atomic bombs. Like we obviously weren't the only country, you know, looking into that. Right? We knew the Germans were, yeah. but actually the Japanese were too. And although they were far behind us as far as being able to make an actual atomic bomb or atomic explosion, they were able to use what we would call today like a dirty bomb. It was basically mm-hmm. a conventional explosive, but that would spread radioactive fallout all over the place. And um, they actually planned on doing that again against uh, New York City. And to do it, they um, actually created two of these. They were sent and like on convoy missions, never actually uh, totally used. It was a, basically a submarine that could launch two aircraft. I'm sure you've seen this. I, yeah, I the Japanese. Them. Yeah, I, you could actually see pictures of that. Yeah, they had the pictures of them. It would, it would, it would, you know, it would surface and it could launch two seaplanes basically. And they they were made. They had them, and they were going to yeah. design to send them in to attack New York City, you know, California, basically American bases, and try to. It was again. They knew this wasn't going to win the war for them. It was more of a way to get some sort of sue for peace, you know, better terms than what they want, the terms that they wanted, uh, because they were going to have you know Americans basically infected with radiation because they knew radiation. They actually knew a bit more about radiation than we did, just because they were expending a lot of this stuff on like the Chinese for so many years, like units, mm-hmm. unit. Um, what was that unit called? Seven thirty one. Right. Yeah, it was like those horrible, you know, everything that the Japanese did, you know, on the human experiment, which we should really do something on them at one point. That would be an interesting. <laughs> write that. Write that one down. You know, seven thirty. That that, was, that that one's going to be morbid. Like if we do that one, that one's like really. Yeah, we're going to have to warn our kids not, not to. Uh, yeah, I, I don't really want to. Well, I know a couple of teachers in my school that used to um, do like these big units on uh, on Unit Seven Thirty One and really go over some of the stuff, and then like some kids were like, "Wow." And, we, at my high school, we had a lot of Chinese exchange students. They would come over, and then one of them actually lived kind of near that area. And they said, yeah, it's still like a major topic there. Like, there are people still, like, there's people there who are around and stuff like that. And 
it's something too that the Japanese a lot of times don't formally admit. Like they admit it happens, but not to that extent. It's it's a whole it's a whole other podcast, whole other story. Yeah. But uh, but seven thirty one, everything that they did there. But they knew how dangerous radiation was. So by dropping it on people, they knew it was going to be one of those things that was going to cause casualties and cause death and suffering. So yeah, that was their plan. Oh, we can go. On, we can go. We can go on for this forever. Like just basically, you know. Again, this is these are the weapons that both sides are thrown. Some, you know, they're gonna throw it against the wall, seeing what sticks. So that you know, what what's gonna work, what doesn't. Even the ones that don't necessarily work, then they are gonna work. It's it's kind of like the base technology that works. Like, remember, the first computers were made during World War Two. Yeah. Process information, right? Break, you know, the Enigma codes and stuff like that, and. It's just, it's just one of those topics we can go on we can go on forever. All right. Well, I guess that kind of brings us to the end, right? You know, thank you for listening, everyone. And I hope you uh, tune in again next week. Stay safe, guys. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.